Welcome to this episode of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello, brought to you by Dermalogica. Part of getting older is my changing skincare needs, and the brand that I have stuck with through all of those changes is a company that was founded by a woman who understands how our skin changes as we age. Dermalogica takes care of all skin types and concerns with products that are backed by science and deliver professional results at home. So my go-to product that I cannot live without, it's the Daily Microfoliant, and it removes dull skin cells and leaves my skin smoother and brighter. Listen, you can use code AGINGPOWERFULLY today and receive an exclusive gift with a minimum $50 purchase by going to dermalogica.ca. Now on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. This is where we are having conversations with experts in their fields to improve the lives of women right across this country to not only live healthier and longer, but certainly stronger. And I am thrilled to have with me my guest today. Her name is Dr. Amy Lewis Bayless. Now, Dr. Bayless or Lewis Bayless is an emergency medicine trained specialist with over a decade working in the greater Toronto area. She supplemented her ER training with a diploma in medical education and was on faculty at University of Toronto as an education lead for medical trainees. Now, having witnessed hundreds of patients struggle at the end stage of disease, Dr. Amy's primary focus is now on disease prevention, specifically for women and the role of menopause transition. Uh, if you'd like to learn any more about Dr. Amy and get evidence-based news that you can use for your health, you can follow her on her Instagram, which is at It's Our Time Canada. Dr. Amy Lewis Bayless, welcome to Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Now, I'm so excited to speak with you because the goal of this podcast has been always to educate, to examine, and to empower, and specifically with women, educating women about our very own health, about the healthcare system, and about evidence-based lifestyle and medical interventions. And you as a doctor and as a physician, this is literally the world that you eat, sleep, and breathe in. And I'm always curious before we dive into conversation, besides being a woman yourself, how it is that you came to this area of medicine and why now disease prevention is so much of the bulk of your passion and your work. Yeah, so I spent, as you said, over 10 years working in the emergency department. And there were a lot of things about being an emergency medicine physician uh, that I love. But probably if I had to rate my most favorite part of my job, it's the education component. I thrive getting to teach women, parents, el the elderly uh, about their health. And I often feel that one of the reasons people engage in the emergency department is because they don't know. They don't know whether or not this is emergency or not. And someone hasn't taken the time to explain to them information about their health, whether it's their family doctor or a specialist, or they just haven't had the opportunity to engage. And so I found during the COVID last couple of years that I was seeing a lot of women coming to the emergency department with issues that were really 
should have been in the hands of the primary gynecologist. And a lot of gynecology didn't happen uh, during COVID. There were operating room delays. Um, a lot of offices were closed. And I really sort of started seeing these women and thinking, A, I'm in this age bracket. Am I going to start having these symptoms? And B, what is it we're missing? And a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of hearing a uh, gynecologist who practices in Quebec, her name's Natalie Gamache, uh, give a talk to other female physicians. And it was about the menopause transition and what exactly was happening to our hormones and what the implications were on our health. And to be honest, other than maybe a moment in medical school, which was 20 years ago, in which someone said, menopause, it happens, there's hot flashes, and we don't give hormones anymore. This had never come up in my entire medical training. I did five years of residency. I was a medical education lead for residents going through residency, and this was never addressed. And I literally had a moment in which I was like, this needs to get out. I need to tell as many people about this as possible. And it really triggered a passion in really educating women. I started with telling my friends, my parents, my family members. And then I started doing a deep dive into like, how do we get this out to women? And part of that is learning about how to prevent disease from happening. In the first place. This is why I think you're the perfect person to have this episode with, because of course, the name of this episode is preventing disease as we age. Mm -hmm. And because our focus in this uh, whole show is particularly women, there is such a gap out there, not only in education, but also for women accessing care as you've really laid mm -hmm. out so, so well. And I think that Starting here with definitions is really important. At least mm -hmm. maybe that's just the student in me, the perpetual no, student. And I think that um, beginning the discussion with how do you define health? Like what is health to you as a doctor? Is it just simply absence of disease or is there something a little bit more encompassing? How do you define what is health or what is healthy? So you just said the textbook definition, which is the absence of disease. But I mean, I have my own personal definition of health. And I do think it's really important as you have a podcast that empowers women, that we let women also sit back and think, what is health to us? And to me, there's really sort of three main components to that. So one is being emotionally connected and emotionally healthy. I think having healthy relationships with our partners and our friends and our community is very important. I think being physically able and having mobility optimized so that you're able to grow old, uh, play with your grandchildren. If you wanna travel in your 70s and 80s, that's available to you. Uh, and I think the third part is to be cognitively sharp. I mean, you need your brain to function. You want to be able to think and work and act independently for as long as possible. Those are great definitions. And I love those different components because I think it's so it, it is so much more than just, well, I don't have a disease or I don't have an exactly. injury and therefore I'm healthy. It is so it literally is mind, body, soul, uh, head to toe. A lot of listeners 
understand the term lifespan or life expectancy. Mm-hmm. You know, how many years any person is expected to live and walk in this physical body on this earth. But a lot of more, a lot more doctors, a lot of scientists, anybody who's been listening to any podcast about health and wellness have increasingly been hearing scientists and researchers and doctors and healthcare practitioners talk about specifically health span. And so health span versus lifespan. And in this discussion about preventing disease and living what we would define for ourselves as a healthy life, how would you define and distinguish lifespan versus health span? So as a definition, as you just said, lifespan is how many years have you lived? So if you die at 80, your lifespan was 80 years. Health span is how long during that period of life were you healthy? Did you have the mobility? Did you have the cognitive sharpness? Did you have those emotional healthy connections? And the idea behind health span is we don't want you to age and live the rest of your life just for the sake of living it. We want you to have health during those years. And I think another part of health span is the idea of taking agency on your health. So this idea that this is not just about being healthy for as many years. This is about being medically literate about what the health health risk factors are. It's about taking an active role in what your health looks like and being active about you know, risk factor prevention. And the third is uh, about feeling empowered, empowered within your health so that you feel that you're in control of it. You know, I think a lot of people listening may just say, well, okay, great. There's lifespan and there's health span. I think quite obviously a lot of people want to increase their health span as long as possible. But I think there's a certain contingent of people listening who just think, you know what? Well, listen, what happens when you get old is you just get sick or eventually you're going to develop some kind of disease or you're going to fall and you're going to hurt yourself. And that there is perhaps among certain people or generations, this pervasive thinking that, well, illness and disease and injury are just automatic things that come along with aging. Is that true? No, it's not true. So I think because of my background in emergency medicine, I spent over 10 years watching women at the end stage of disease. So I was diagnosing women with heart disease with a heart attack. And having a heart attack or, for example, breaking your hip, these have very significant outcomes. This is not just breaking your hip. If you break your hip, you have a 30, 20 to 30% chance of dying within a year. There is more than a 50% chance that you will never go home and live independently again. So this is not just, oh, we're getting old. These have major implications. And I think what I didn't realize and what a lot of women don't realize is that these disease processes take years to happen. Um, They take 10, 20, 30 years. So the disease processes are starting when you're in your 30s, when you're in your 40s, when you're in your 50s. And so this is the time to start caring about your health. You can make changes in your 60s and 70s. And if you do, they will be of benefit to you. I really don't believe in the idea of ever being too late, but if you really want to get ahead of this and have that agency and really think about having that health span, you got to start thinking about it now. So, you know, then the the question is, what is it behind aging and disease when we talk about it from the perspective of prevention and specifically when we speak about this from the perspective of 
women getting older and disease, you know, how much of how we're going to age is it based on environment, lifestyle, genetics, uh, you know, all of those things combined? Are there numbers that we can play with? Like, you know, I say this because you're a doctor, you understand this, but I always say I'm coming at this from the perspective of an average woman, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the average patient, where I say to myself, okay, what is actually in my control? What is not in my control? I love numbers. And so, you know, uh, for some people that might not work, but I mean, are we talking about a good chunk of our health span actually being in our control versus something like, well, it's already predetermined in my genetics? Mm -hmm. So I actually think that genetics play a small contributing factor towards your overall health. I mean, there are certain specific risk factors. For example, if you're carrying, uh, certain genetic predispositions like the BRCA gene, then yes, you're going to have an increased risk of developing breast cancer. But I think on an individual basis, really the influence of lifestyle and environment probably play, I don't know, probably 75 to 85% of what your disease looks like. I mean, Peter Atia talks all the time about how cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women. And, and men. And if we were to modify and optimize all the lifestyles, everything that was in our control, heart disease wouldn't even be in the top 20 diseases that were killing women. So it really speaks to the power that you have in, in impacting your health. I, and I want to call back there to Peter Atia for people who aren't familiar with him. He's actually a Canadian. He's a doctor. I know he's in the States now doing huge things. And he's uh, all about I mean, optimizing health on every level. And he's got books. Outlive is his latest one. And he's got a podcast. So I think if you if you are interested in delving into uh, the heavy science that he brings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a call back to, to Peter uh, and his mm-hmm. work that he's doing there for people who aren't familiar with him. Okay, I'm going to dive in really headfirst now, uh, specifically into women. And yeah. what we're seeing now is there are ailments, diseases, injuries that are really specific to women and really specific with when we see the prevalence of them increase in our lifetime. So let's dive into what are the biggest ailments and diseases and even potentially injuries that we face as women? And when do we start to see these increase in our lifetime? So it's hard to talk about the diseases that impact women the most without talking about menopause. But just to take a step back, the five diseases that I would say impact women the most and that you need to have on your radar is one, cardiovascular disease. You are more likely than any other disease to die of cardiovascular disease. That's one in three women. And break down what that is. So like before you dive in, so is that heart attack, stroke? What is that? What is cardiovascular disease? Okay. So heart attack. The second is osteoporosis, and I think that warrants a bit more discussion as we keep talking. Uh, The third is uh, cancer, so breast, ovarian, and colon being the most common. The fourth is dementia and Alzheimer's, which affects women two-thirds more than it affects men. So 60% of of Alzheimer's dementia cases are women. And then the fifth is sort of all encompassing under like insulin resistance, metabolic disease, diabetes. And so before you go through menopause, 
all of these diseases, other than breast cancer, are actually quite low in risk. I mean, your chances of having a heart attack before menopause is about one in 33 women. You go through menopause and that changes to one in three. Most wow. women, one in three. Um, your risk of having an osteoporotic fracture before the age of 50 is extremely low. Once you're over the age of 65, it really increases once again to one in three. And so that menopause process really does mark a transition period where women are vulnerable for developing disease. And a lot of that's related to the power of estrogen and estrogen diminishing dramatically through that menopause transition. So perimenopause and menopause, which for those who do not know, is really the day when you no longer have periods. It's been a year since your last menstrual cycle and that moment marks your day of menopause. After that is the post-menopause period. Okay, we're going to dive into all of that now because again, even though this is not uh, a menopause episode per se, For sure. clearly there is a very clear link between that menopause transition. I think, uh, you know, the average age is 51 for women to actually go mm -hmm. through menopause, but all the perimenopausal years prior to that, I mean, you can give me the numbers. I've heard anywhere from four to 10 years before your last mm -hmm. period could technically have you in this perimenopausal state where you're having all of these hormonal fluctuations. Mm -hmm. So in the perimenopausal state, are we still more prone to those same diseases? Or is it once that last day of our period happens that we are and then pass that? So during the perimenopause, your estrogen levels are fluctuating kind of all over the place, which is why you tend to have your regular periods and you tend to experience some of the more common side effects of perimenopause, which would be the hot flashes, difficulty sleeping, uh, palpitations. But it's really that dramatic decline of estrogen that really primes or sets yourself up for these disease states to happen. And really, your estrogen isn't really in the less than five, like almost zero, uh, until you're really through perimenopause and you've reached that menopause age. And we know for women who develop osteoporosis, we know that bone loss happens really after the age of 30. So you reach peak bone mass by the age of 30. And then 30 heading into 50, you're only losing about maybe 0.5% of bone a year. And then that lack of estrogen that happens through menopause, it really creates this rapid period of about one to three years before menopause happens, where you're losing, for some women, anywhere between 10 to 20% of their entire bone mass. And really, that's what sets you up for um, osteoporosis afterwards. And we know women who have early menopause or surgical menopause, uh, women who have had breast cancer and are on medications in their 30s that affect their estrogen levels, all have an earlier and higher risk of bone, bone loss, like osteoporosis, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of Alzheimer's, and even an increased risk of death. Okay. So, you know, somebody listening to this is like, okay, well, you know, I kind of, you know, pretty good, take care of myself. I, mm -hmm. I move my body. I eat most of the time pretty mm -hmm. well. Um, I consider myself in average health, maybe not perfect health. And then they find themselves in this perimenopausal or menopause transition. You know, are you saying that simply the act of menopause in this transition? And as you say, our estrogen sort of falling off a cliff, you can be living technically the same kind of lifestyle and risk automatically goes up. Yes. Okay. 
I want to make that clear because I think that uh, I'll say this from my perspective and someone who, you know, anybody who follows me on Instagram and knows my story, I'm obsessed with fitness. And and I say all of this knowing that there's a privilege to being accessing or to be able to access health and wellness and exercise and good foods and all of those things. And I consider myself very, very lucky to have access to those things. But I think there is a pervasive thought out there. And perhaps this is a general misogyny in medicine that, well, women, you should just take care of yourself better and you're not going to have any of these problems in life. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that you can be taking, quote unquote, good care of yourself and and eating well and moving your body and still face these same numbers and risks for things like cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis simply because of menopause. That's absolutely correct. I mean, menopause really, like I said, does put you get put your body in a vulnerable state for increasing your risk of disease. And I really think that this transition or that perimenopause menopause is a really a wonderful time, although for some people not, is a time really for you to sit back and say like, look, I want to have agency over my health. I buy into this idea of health span. Let me like sit down, get myself educated and think about what how I want the rest of my life to look because I do feel even though you can't control the menopause process. Every single woman is going to go through menopause if they have the privilege of living long enough. You still can have an impact on your bone health. You can still modify the other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, which are the same risk factors you know, for dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, you can still play an active role in what your health looks like. Okay, so we, we're going to get into prevention in just a minute. But when we take a look at sort of the downstream effects of those changes in numbers and r- increased risk when it comes to cardiovascular disease, I'll sort of go with the top three, I think, is cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease and osteoporosis and cancer risks. You know, between the three of those, y- you know, as a woman is now approaching and perhaps she's listening to us and she's in our sort of age bracket, maybe you're in your 40s, maybe you're mm-hmm. approaching your 50s. Is this something I, I say this because I hear those numbers and I just get terrified. Mm-hmm. There is a lot that we can do starting now, wherever you are, that can mitigate some of these risks, correct? Uh, like, absolutely. And that's why I'm on here. And that's why I'm, you know, have a platform in which I'm trying to share this information. I think the biggest, the biggest part of this is that we didn't know, or we did know, and it just wasn't being shared in the way other inf- information is shared. Uh, you know, I go to schools and I give talks about menopause myths. And when I talk about this bone loss that's happening through your 30s and your 40s, uh, people are shocked. They, they don't know. And so I think a lot of it is, once again, having that agency over your health and having that active role. Uh, because I do, I, I really do believe that you can counteract some of these risk factors and really make a difference in terms of what your health looks like by implementing some of these prevention strategies. So we're going to get into prevention next, but, you know, as a woman, is there any indication around us, whether it is our first degree relatives, uh, whether it's moms, sisters, cousins, aunts, grandmothers, is there any way of foreseeing what our either risks for disease are in this menopause transition, Mm -hmm. or is this really an individual woman by individual woman scenario? No, I mean, there are certain 
there are certain diseases in which a family member with similar risk factors or having had the disease does put you at increased risk. So cardiovascular disease, if you have a family with history of cardiovascular disease, that does put you at increased risk. Same with osteoporosis. If you have a family member who fell and broke their hip or has had fractures related to osteoporosis, that does increase your risk. Now, did your mother smoke and she also broke her hip fracture? I mean, that's really hard to tease out, but there is definitely a role for family history. But I think let's take that information and if you know it and see your doctor and say, okay, this is what I know. What is it that I need to do to learn more about this? Where does this put me at risk? Should I be finding out what my other cardiovascular risk factors are at this time? Okay, this is where the the bulk of this conversation I want us to really focus on. This podcast is about educating and empowering women. And one thing that I believe more than anything is that, as you alluded to, all the generations of women before us, for so many reasons, perhaps misogyny being at the top of the list, mm-hmm. have not had access to either information at all, good information. There's been a lot of stigma uh, that once we're past our childbearing years, people just don't want to talk about women and health anymore because it feels to some that we can just be so easily discarded. And mm-hmm. one thing I think is happening, and maybe this is just from my narrow view of the world, um, but I don't think so, speaking with friends and family, is our generation wants to age differently. It's why mm-hmm. I named this podcast Aging Powerfully, because the old adage of a woman just aging gracefully, to me anyway, connotes a certain passivity mm-hmm. and a sort of acceptance and just go over there and shh, and be quiet and disappear. And I think that this is where people like you are changing the conversation because we do want to age differently because we can. And as long as we've got good evidence-based information and research behind it, we can literally change the trajectory of our lives so we don't have to age like any other generation before us. And my heart just goes out to generations like my mother, perhaps women in your family, where I just think, what a disservice Mm -hmm. to millions and billions of women that they were just told, well, you're just getting older and deal with it. And so this is the thrust of this a podcast and this episode is prevention, which I know is your passion as well. Mm-hmm. So regardless of the age of the woman who's listening to this or watching this right now, we're thinking, what can we do? What is within our control right now that we can literally change the path of our lifespan to increase specifically health span and mitigate the risks of specifically cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, uh, various cancers, to live a longer, healthier, stronger life? So I think the most important part of this is to care enough about your health to actually start implementing these changes and to become very educated on on what it is you need to do and think about your why behind that. And the reason why I say that is I'm about to tell you a whole bunch of things that you can implement, but if you are not implementing them, it's, it's, I think that behavioral change can be really difficult. And so I often start when I talk to patients is like, what is your why behind why you want to implement all of these changes? Is this because you want to grow old and be able to travel the world? Is it because you want to play with your grandkids? Is it because you want to feel good in your body right now? But I think having a why is very important. And I also think before I give all of these strategies that any implementation is 
making a change towards the better. So you do not need to implement everything I say right now, right off the cuff. If you take one thing from today and start implementing it and take those baby steps, you will be making positive changes towards your health. I think that's really important to say because I think uh, there's a lot of women listening and many of us, not all of us, type A, pointing Mm -hmm. at myself right now, Mm -hmm. we think it's all or none and Mm -hmm. it's got to be the whole thing or nothing. And I think that that's um, indicative of just probably how a lot of us run our lives, our careers, our households. And I love the message that it's baby steps. Mm -hmm. I know that there's going to be the lifestyle interventions and then there will be medical interventions. So why Mm -hmm. don't we start with the lifestyle interventions that are things that we can, you know, low barrier to access that we can start today? Of course. So there's probably, I actually not even probably, I am going to confidently say that there is no better medicine intervention period than introducing exercise into your life and specifically resistance and strength training for women which is something that I've actually had to implement myself over the last couple of years because I never really recognized the benefits of resistance training. And the reason why I'm focusing on resistance training um, as the goal for the type of exercise you're doing is resistance training is really the only one that's go- type of exercise that's going to have a significant impact on that bone and muscle health. And as I said, you know, osteoporosis really is a disease of aging for women that has a significant burden if you break your hip or you have a spine fracture. And, and so with resistance training, there's multiple benefits. And so with, with that, you are going to be preserving your muscle mass. You are going to be preventing uh, osteoporosis and bone loss. It is going to have an impact on your heart health. It is going to impact your lipid profile and your cholesterol levels. It is going to impact your blood pressure. It will decrease your blood sugar and decrease your risk for diabetes. It improves your sleep quality. It improves your mental health. It decreases your risk of depression. It decreases your risk of Alzheimer's. And it actually increases, decreases your risk of dying. It has an improvement on all-cause mortality and an improvement on quality of life. So bang for your buck, resistance training for sure is the best intervention you can introduce. And I think what's really important is you do not need to go and pay for a personal trainer at a boutique gym to get this going. You can start at home. There is significant evidence that 15 minutes twice, three times a week will have these positive benefits. You can do training without weights. You can do squats. You can do push-ups. If you have a knee injury or you're disabled, you can sit and lift a, lift a, a, a hand weight. You really, the weight that you're lifting doesn't really matter in terms of light weights versus heavy weights. It's that you're lifting to the point of fatigue where you're going to get that benefit. Okay. I love this because, again, speaking to women, certainly women in my generation, it was cardio, 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 100%. right? We would go to the gym and it's like, okay, there's the treadmill. Uh, maybe you were going to go out for runs. Maybe there was the Stairmaster, the elliptical, and we were cardio addicts because somehow sure. along the way it was, that was what was ingrained in us. But the other message that was also ingrained in us was that weightlifting was for men. 
Mm-hmm. Weightlifting is going to make you bulky. Mm-hmm. I don't want to look like that. Mm-hmm. And therefore I don't pick up weights. And, and, and I think, listen, I list, I subscribe to the religion of strength training because it's, while I have done it my whole life, I've never done it more now that I am 46. I've, I've been lifting weights my whole life, but I was looking for a certain aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I say that because there's a bunch of women like me out there who thought, I don't want to look that way. And now the conversation is, if this is going to ensure my independence and freedom when I'm 60 and 70 and 80, then give me the damn dumbbell, you know? And I think that it's very intimidating when women say, oh my gosh, you want me to walk into a gym, into the weight area where all the guys are? I get it. There's a thing called gym intimidation. So I love to hear you say that it doesn't have to be in a gym. It doesn't have to be with the trainer. I say to my mom, who's 83, who works out five to six days a week. She's got all her free YouTube channels. She's lifting weights most of those days. Amazing. And it's all for zero cost. And, and, and my mother is one of my biggest role models. And so it can be where, where you are and where you begin is it's where you are, you know, give yourself the shot. So I love that you just said strength training and you started there. So um, strength training, number one exercise, you listed all of the benefits. What is another lifestyle intervention that we can implement now? So there is still a benefit for doing cardio. uh, And the benefit for doing cardio is twofold. One is it improves your aerobic capacity and the strength of your heart. And so as you age, it's not important, just important to have healthy bones and healthy muscle and a healthy brain. You want to have the cardiovascular reserve to be able to walk up a flight of stairs if you need to, you forgot something and you need to grab something. Or maybe it's really important to you that you be able to hike when you're in your retirement. And so that is where the idea of card, the benefits of cardio come from. And it doesn't have to be crazy. Uh, really, the idea is once again, trying to implement small things, 15, 20 minutes, three times a week, schedule it in, find a friend, uh, buddy up with someone, and you're trying to increase your heart rate to the point that you can talk, and but you're a little bit breathless. And we call this zone two training. And really, that's an area that helps impact um, how well you're going to age from a cardiovascular reserve. Is walking involved? Like, is walking in that? So walking is helpful, but you want to be walking to a pace where you're a little bit winded. Uh, You really do want to increase that heart rate. Uh, It doesn't need to be sprinting, but that you're able to carry a conversation, but you're breathless while you're doing it. Okay. That's great, great tips. So we're, we're looking at strength training. We're bringing in some kind of cardio. Do you have any guidance as far as how many times a week? So the, the American Heart Association and the Canadian Cardiovascular Society right now are recommending about 120 minutes a week uh, to 180 minutes a week of cardiovascular type fitness, which would be like aerobic training, like walking uh, at a brisk pace, cycling, even aggressively playing with your kids in the snow. But as I said, that's what I aim for. However, if you're starting from zero, like I said, 15-minute aliquots, I think, is a great place to start. Develop the habit. And then once you get there and you're feeling great about it, then start increasing the time. Great. Okay. We've got strength training. We've got cardio. What's next? So nutrition. Uh, And I think I could spend an entire podcast talking about all the various ways that we can change up our nutrition to optimize our health. 
But I really like the idea of this being a day where we talk about what we can add to our life and not about what we're going to take away. And I think one of the areas that women don't pay enough attention to and has a profound benefit is on their protein intake. We really need to be prioritizing protein at meals. And we're really looking for uh, probably significantly more protein consumption than you're used to. Uh, the goal is 1.2 grams per kilogram per day of protein or even more. And so for a lot of women, that's 100 to 120 grams of protein a day. And so in order for you to consume this, you're going to have to be very cognizant of your protein intake. Now, when I sit down before I eat any meal, I really think to myself, did I prioritize protein uh, for the meal? And I think that's a really great place for people to start. This is my life right now, 110%. And it is, it is, it is, it's a lot of work. It's um, so hard. But I, it is hard, right? And I think, you know, I only recently reintroduced meat into my diet. And one of the many reasons why I did that was because I knew prioritizing protein was going to be a little less challenging if I was mm -hmm. actually eating meat. I wasn't getting the type of protein that I needed without meat. And so those challenges and obviously speaking to a nutritionist or, or another expert to help you perhaps build a diet, if that's something that is accessible to you is mm -hmm. definitely recommended. But again, there are a lot of resources out there that will tell you the equivalence of, you know, for me personally, I aim for about 30 grams of protein every meal that I'm, I'm eating. And that's coming in many forms. And this, there's another podcast, I'm sure, to be discussing plant-based proteins versus animal-based proteins. But point being, I'm trying to shoot for 150 grams of protein for me. That's that's for me in my calculation. And my gosh, it's a full-time job. So we're not saying it's really hard. That it's easy, but mm -hmm. the benefits will pay off, right? Mm -hmm. And the why, once again, behind why you need to consume the protein is that after the age of 25, 30, our muscle mass is decreasing a couple of percents a year. And in order for women to build that muscle mass back, and I just went over all the benefits of why muscle really is equivalent to medicine, we really need to be matching that strength training with protein so that we are able to achieve protein synthesis at the muscle level. So you can lift a lot of weights, but if you are not providing the protein, you're not gonna be able to build the muscle that's required uh, for you to get the benefit of the strength training. Okay. And so we've got nutrition down and we've got this big emphasis on protein. Where do veggies and carbs fall into this world of nutrition and our health as we try to prevent disease? So vegetables, I mean, have amazing benefits. And certainly if you're making a plate, you want to have, um, you know, I stick to somewhat stick to Canada's health food guidelines. If you make a plate, you really want half the plate to be vegetables. And that's because it provides you with all your nutri nutrients. And a lot of the um, nutrition that comes from that is a lot better than the supplements that are often being touted and sold to women who are looking for what do I need to take in aging. So your calcium, your vitamin D, your magnesium, your omega-3s, all of this can be found in A, your protein, but B, a lot of this is uh, in your fruits and vegetables. And it's much better to be getting those vitamins and those nutrients through healthy food sources and natural food sources like fruits and vegetables than it is to be taking a supplement. 
Okay. So nutrition, nutrition is key. I'm going to do many, many, many podcasts about this because there's so many intricacies when Mm -hmm. you start to really parse apart nutrition. Uh, And again, it's, it's a whole world unto itself, but I love that general idea of half of your plate being veg vegetables and then uh, a good amount of your protein, whatever your, your number is that you're shooting for, for Mm -hmm. each meal as well. And where do carbs sit in this for you? Again, whole other podcast to discuss the, the vilification of carbs. Mm Uh, where do they stay? What's their standing with you? So carbs are necessary. Uh, carbs are help, help, healthy for your brain health. Uh, you require carbohydrates to to thrive. I think where you're going with is refined sugars. Uh, and I, I don't want to spend the, fun, the podcast focusing on refined sugars, but minimizing them will make a huge impact on your health. It will contribute towards your muscle health, your liver health. It will help with that insulin resistance. It will decrease your risk for diabetes. It will impact your lipid profile. It will help your cardiovascular health. There is a role for complex carbohydrates, and fiber is a very important, uh, very important in considering your like gastrointestinal health. So it helps with preventing constipation. And I really do think needs to be um, considered whether that's paying attention to the fiber intake you're getting naturally or taking a fiber supplement like Metamucil. I really want to be trying to aim for about 20 to 30 grams uh, of fiber daily at minimum in order to have that those healthy bowel habits. Okay. So we've got exercise in the form of strength training. We've got cardio. Uh, we've got nutrition, specifically protein, uh, obviously your vegetables and your fiber. Okay. Any other lifestyle interventions that we can start to implement now? So I think the last one to pay attention to is if you, if you're not sure already, do not smoke cigarettes. Smoking contributes to all of these risk factors. But the second one is alcohol and alcohol has played a huge part in my social life. It plays a big part in that whole mantra of surviving motherhood and you know, going out for a drink at the end of the day. But I think more and more evidence is coming out that alcohol really has a significant impact on your brain health, your bone health, your cardiovascular health. And paying attention to your alcohol intake is something that I think all women should be doing. And if you're really drinking more than one or two drinks a week, I would urge you to consider cutting back and drinking less. I love to hear a doctor say it because there has been this movement for for so long bringing women into the world of alcohol in such a significant yeah. way. And, you know, it, it again, there'll be a, another podcast about this. But for me personally, I cut out al- alcohol in September of 2022. And I did that primarily for my health. And I'm the self-professed party girl. Um, and P.S. I'm still partying. P.S. I'm still a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think disengaging that social uh, hit that we get that's always associated with a drink. I think this is going to be one of the big frontiers as women that we're going to be facing, if not already, then in the very near future for, I think, a lot of women listening. And I know personally, anecdotally with my friend group, as soon as I announced that I was not drinking alcohol anymore, there was initial resistance. But I'll Mm -hmm. tell you, a lot more women in my friend group and family group are talking about it. And I think that's a really, really positive message as well. Let's talk about medical interventions. And we discussed menopause transition being such a significant um, reason behind the increased prevalence of various diseases and illness for women. 
on the pharmacological side, I know that word's a trigger word, but on the mm-hmm. medical intervention side, what options are available for women that do improve quality of life and even health outcomes for us, particularly during that menopause transition? So I think it's important, once again, to understand the diseases that we discussed today and then what the risk factors are. And if you have any of the risk factors, to talk to your doctor about what the pharmacologic interventions or prevention strategies are available to you, because they really are different depending on the disease that you're looking at. So I can't talk about the impact of the vulnerability of you know, the menopause transition and how that affects your disease outcomes without having a discussion right now about whether or not there's a role for menopause hormonal therapy, so estrogen or progesterone, uh, in disease prevention. And what I can say is that menopause hormonal therapy has not been approved for uh, disease prevention uh, when it comes to cardiovascular disease, when it comes to Alzheimer's at this point. Uh, menopause hormonal therapy has been approved. And so this is taking very small doses of estrogen, about one third to one sixth the dose of what you would have taken if you took the birth control pill uh, to prevent pregnancy when you were younger. And it's really to sort of raise the estrogen levels just a little bit to try and prevent those um, disease processes that can occur by, because of the lack of estrogen. Menopausal hormone therapy has been approved Uh, in the United States for use in osteoporosis prevention. It has not been approved in Canada, but can be used off-label. And this is really something to consider if you are having hot flashes or other bothersome symptoms related to menopause, talk to your doctor about potentially the role of menopausal hormone therapy for you. Because if you do take it for those reasons, uh, there is a benefit for disease prevention. So a 30% decreased risk of cardiovascular disease, a 35% decreased risk of osteoporotic hip fracture. And so there are health benefits that have come out of the women that are taking it taking menopausal hormone therapy for their bothersome symptoms, but there haven't been trials that have been done appropriately for women that are starting hormone therapy around the age of 50, less than 10 years from when menopause happened, that have really given us the ability to give this as primary prevention. So I want to be clear because there's still so much misinformation and disinformation about the ages of when women can technically talk to their doctor and and ask for and take menopausal hormone therapy. A lot of misconceptions are there specifically are, well, if you are still having a period, you can't be taking hormone therapy. Or if you are of a certain age, you know, under that 51-year-old threshold for menopause, it's not for you there's a lot of changing discussions and increased education as far as who can start taking if if their doctor says it's safe and if the you know benefits outweigh the risks can a woman who is still having a period who hasn't actually experienced her actual menopause meaning she's still having periods perhaps they're irregular can those women also still access hormone therapy Yes. So the indications for starting hormone therapy, uh, specifically for the menopause, for menopause, is when you're having bothersome symptoms. So if you are having hot flashes that are bothersome for you, uh, or other symptoms, 
related to menopause, hot flashes, as I said, brain fog, uh, low mood, you may be having some vaginal dryness or pain with intercourse, the time to talk to your doctor about it is when you're experiencing those symptoms. As I said before, as a medical community, we are not educated uh, in this area. And so unless your family doctor is going out right now and learning about how to manage women who are requesting hormone therapy, you're going to have to probably do a little bit of work to help educate your doctor that this is okay. And a great resource is the Menopause Society, uh, which is an American um, organization that has multiple guidelines that you could print and bring to your family doctor about initiating, initiating hormone. And the second is the Canadian Menopause Society. There's some guidance there with lots of information that you can bring uh, to your family doctor as well. Okay. And again, I'm going to be dedicating um, an episode very, very soon to that specifically and accessing menopause hormone therapy in Canada because boy, oh boy, it's it's the wild west out there if you can find it at all in many, many cases. So, of course. so stay tuned uh, for that as well. So um, you've given us so much great information. Um, I'm sure everybody's been busy writing down a lot of these key pieces. I do like to end every single episode with an expert like yourself and asking the question, what is your number one piece of advice for women to age powerfully? So my, for, my number one piece of advice would be to have agency in your health. Take an active role in what your health looks like uh, for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Find your why. Find your why for why you want to age uh, in a healthy manner and start really small in terms of interventions. If you're overwhelmed, you may not, you may quit before you even start. And so really implementing very small changes, knowing that this is a marathon, not a race. This is a long-term commitment to your health. And by doing those things, you will have amazing, amazing, an amazing rest of your life. We love that. Again, remind our audience where they can find you and your amazing information. So I have a social media platform called It's Our Time Canada, and we're providing, uh, there's videos and content information about aging, um, aging and the perimenopause and menopause transition. Dr. Amy Lewis Bayless, thank you so much for your time and all of this phenomenal information. I know this is not going to be the last time that I'm going to have you here because you're just such a wealth of knowledge and we do have this shared passion. Me coming mm -hmm. at it from the, the sort of average person perspective and you coming at it from the medical community. And I think um, that you and I know you've got a great team that you work with as well are doing phenomenal things to finally change the conversation in a meaningful way move the dial. And I cannot be more thankful on behalf of all Canadian women for the work that you are doing. Um, and I cannot wait to see what you do next with your team as well. So all I can say is thank you so, so much for your time and imparting your wisdom with my audience today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so passionate about this and want to share this information with women everywhere. So thank you for giving me that platform. A big thank you again to Dr. Amy Lewis Bayless for joining me today on Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. If you'd like more information on what Amy is up to and her team, follow her on Instagram at, at It's Our Time Canada. Don't forget, you can also follow me on Instagram. It's at 
Aging Powerfully with MG. You can follow me personally at Melissa Grello. Hey, we've got a YouTube channel as well. So just look up Melissa Grello and we've got some great clips from all of the episodes loaded there as well. And please, if you liked this episode, give us a like, give us a subscribe, and we would love for you to review the show as well. It helps us immensely on all fronts and also lets us know what you're thinking about the content that you're getting here. Finally, if you'd like any information about the show, we've got our website as well. It's www.agingpowerfullywithmelissagrello.com. Thank you once again for listening and we'll see you next time.